You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. For the next few weeks, we're taking a break. And so we'll be playing you some of our favourite stories from the All The Best archives. We'll be back with new stories in July. In our first story, Seppa talks about playing the sitar and his struggles learning an instrument 8,000 miles from its origin. Maybe I should switch to playing the piano. Piano players all have nice short nails. I bet they don't get asked strange questions about them. You see, I was sitting in an exam room a quarter hour or so before an exam. As stressful circumstance as it was when one of the folks in the exam room asked me if I do cocaine. I was as straight edge back then as I am today, so this question came as quite a surprise. What's up with your nail? It's so long. Do you snort cocaine with that thing? Aliraza was the coolest guy I knew. He had an enviable nonchalance and an incredible intelligence which he harnessed to create the most impeccable streetwear outfits. A diligently thought out outfit which said, yeah, I don't care. The thought of being considered a bad boy exhilarated me, so I went with it. My ruse was short-lived, however. I can barely handle a cup of coffee without getting the jitters, so that's all you need to know about my relationship with stimulating substances. I use my long nail to play the setar. Whenever I say that, I play the setar. I follow it up by saying, not to be mistaken with the Indian sitar. Sitar is actually the Hindi pronunciation of the word setar. In Farsi, se means three and tar means string. So setar literally means three strings. Interestingly though, the setar actually has four strings. A mystic dervish added a fourth string some 150 years ago. Perhaps I wouldn't have to explain the etymology of setar each time if I picked a more conventional instrument to play. But in truth, I never chose to play it. It was more a matter of convenience, really. There was a music institute near our house that taught setar, and my mom thought it'd be a good idea if her children got out of the house once in a blue moon. I've been playing the setar ever since. When people in Australia see me playing the setar, they think of it as something exotic. But personally, I think of it much like a guitar, a versatile instrument with a vast repertoire. I have been told to play the guitar before. I still remain unconvinced, but sometimes I wonder if they were right. It was about four years ago in Iran when I was meeting up with some friends. We decided to meet up at Baharistan Square. Baharistan has this strip of road that's lined with music shops selling everything from cheap plastic kazoos to embossed silver lutes. How convenient then that I needed a protective case for my sitar. I brought it along with me to try it for the snuggest fit. First to arrive was Ross. Love that guy. Then came his brother, Ryan. Love that guy too. But who's that he's brought with him? It's Alvin. Boy, do I not love that guy. Alvin was, how shall I say, absolutely insufferable. He was arrogant and boastful. He could literally boast about nothing. Seriously, nothing. 
If you handed him an empty jar, he'd boast about how his jar was nice and light while others were filled with stupid pickles. God have mercy on you if he actually had something to boast about. And it was just my luck that he did. His father had let him in on his construction business and he was making good money. Now he just wouldn't shut up about how much he worked and how he made so much money and how he had workers on call at all times to run his errands. We get hungry so we head to a falafel shop. Alvin spots my sitar leaning against the wall as I liberally douse my falafel sandwich and ketchup. What's that? That? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a sitar. A what? You know, um, a sitar. It's pear-shaped and long. Uh, funny thing about the setar, although its name means three strings, it actually- Yeah, I know what it is. What I meant was, why do you have it? Well, uh, it's a great instrument. It's very versatile and it has a huge repertoire of work. Not many instruments can- Good luck getting laid with that one. The only thing you can pick up with that are old men. Why don't you just play the guitar like a normal person? Well, uh, as I was saying, uh, not many instruments can- Picture this, guys. He's in a park. It's misty. He's sitting beside a pretty girl. He looks deep into her eyes and says, Hey, girl, do you want to hear a tune? So he drags out that tired old thing, and next thing you know, the girl's gone and he's surrounded by a flock of old grandpas. If I were your age, I'd throw that thing down a well and grab a guitar and start plucking, if you know what I mean. Too bad I'm busy with all this construction work. I've got no time for girls. I reckoned he was too dense for me to explain to him that music is a sublime art whose pursuit supersedes the banal naggings of the human passions. Plus, you know what? Joke's on him, because I bet if I wanted to... <sighs> I hate Alvin. I'm going to tell a story about Jalal Ganji. Jalal Ganji was the son of an Iranian aristocrat in early 20th century Iran. He was one of eight young Iranians studying at a university in Germany. One day the dean of the college announces that the emperor of Germany will be visiting the university. All foreign students were to march and perform their national anthem before the emperor. This put Jalal and his peers in a strange position. You see, at the time, Iran didn't have a national anthem. So the Iranian students put their heads together and concluded that, yep, we're in a real pickle here. Jalal finally has an idea. They could sing Uncle Vegetable Cellar. Uncle Vegetable Cellar is like a naughty dance tune. Everyone in Iran knows it, even today. It's a call-and-response between a woman and her local vegetable grocer. Her requests start reasonably enough. She asks, do you have fresh vegetables? And the grocer responds, oh yes. But then things start getting a little raunchy when she uses vegetables as innuendos for sex. The grocer, dutiful as always, responds with, oh yes. The others protest at first, claiming it's a bit too inappropriate for the emperor. But Jalal makes a solid case. There's no time to improvise the national anthem out of thin air, and everyone knows how to sing Uncle Vegetable Cellar. They place their bets on the German emperor not knowing what girthy eggplant means in Farsi. Here's Jalal's account of the day. 
Finally, the day arrives where we were to perform. Wearing our immaculate uniforms, we marched before the Emperor of Germany singing Onkel Vegetablesseller. Onkel Vegetablesseller. Onkel Vegetablesseller. I want some cabbage. I want you a package. Behind us were a group of Irish students. They didn't understand a word of what we were saying. But the call and response was so exciting that they joined us in chanting, Oh yes! Soon the entire stadium was booming with the resounding chant of, Oh yes! The emperor acknowledged us and it all resolved happily. I can't help but feel like those Iranian students in Germany. In Australia, I can get away with anything. No matter what I play, so long as I do it with enough confidence, the audience will accept it. It almost feels like I'm taking advantage of their openness. The content of what I play often goes overlooked. It gets obscured by the sense of novelty that comes from encountering something new. It's like if a German were doing stand-up at a pub, and the response from the audience was, I like the way you roll your R's. It's a positive response, just not the intended one. The relationship between the master and the pupil is of crucial importance when learning the sitar. In Persian music, there's a strong emphasis on improvisation, a little like jazz. To learn how to improvise, you need a role model to emulate, a master of the craft that can correct your musical syntax and guide you to musical independence. This tradition of face-to-face tuition is how this art form has been taught through the centuries. My setar teacher in Australia knew this very well. So every Saturday that I went to his classes, he'd sit face-to-face, pupil before master, and after assigning me a passage to recite, he'd stand up and walk out the room and... Yep, he'd just walk right out the door. He wouldn't reappear until the end of the lesson, when he'd return to tell me my mom had come to pick me up. He's the only other person I've met in Sydney that plays the setar, Well, actually, I don't really know if he played the setar. He'd leave before I had a chance to see him play. I just know that he was very good at telling people their mom had come to pick them up. He also liked tea. When I walk around the city, I see light posts flourishing with leaflets advertising music lessons. If I were learning, say, the guitar, and my teacher abandoned me in the middle of class to put the kettle on, I would walk out the building and into the next, where I'm more than certain I'd find another teacher. By the time the waters come to boil, I probably would have learned Stairway to Heaven. I could even take the experience as a sign to abandon formal training entirely. I'd go rogue, immerse myself in the sea of free, high-quality educational content on YouTube, and 10 years later, get a Grammy for my hit song, Teachers Ain't My Cup of Tea. That was not an option for me. As I said, he was the only person I knew I think might have played the setar. Again, I can't be sure if he did. These days, I just video chat with a better teacher back in Iran. The video is glitchy at times, and the difference in time zones makes arranging classes a bit tricky, but it beats peering out the window waiting for my mom to pull up in the driveway. 
After the lesson, my teacher and I sometimes talk about our favorite metal bands. And between classes, we send each other music memes. I'd like to take this moment to point out the irony of needing fast speed fiber optic internet to learn an ancient art form. So Telstra, if you're listening, the sooner you roll out that MBN, the sooner I can get back to my lessons and less time I'll spend questioning my life choices. Thanks. That story was produced by Sepa Jamshidi Fard. The supervising producer was Ryan Pemberton. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Baroni Peters. At All the Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pay you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our next story, Lydia explores the transformative power of cooking in allowing you to revisit the places and people that you've seen. Broth ingredients. Onions, ginger, garlic, chilies, miso, tahini, veg stock, soy sauce. Around 11am, I'm holding up a mate's second-hand cardigan, trying to decide if I can fit it into my suitcase or if it needs to go to the charity shop. It's a bit of a moot point. I haven't actually figured out yet how I'm going to ship everything back and, in any case, the second-hand stores are closed until who knows when. There's barely any time between now and tomorrow night to make these kinds of packing decisions. I had finally sat down to book my flight that morning. I'd read that multiple borders were shutting to non-citizens, even transiting passengers. Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong. So, in a rush, I bought a ticket home from Heathrow Airport. To be honest, it's a decision I'd been putting off for weeks, even as the lockdown situation grew more serious. I kept avoiding questions from family and friends back home. And finally, my parents made me promise to buy a ticket before we Skyped the next day. Back to the chaos of my half-packed room. I panic and I start doing the rounds on my housemates. I'm trying to palm off my houseplants, a candle, a poster, my favourite green IKEA lamp. There's a sudden pressure to wrap things up quickly and neatly. Shedding personal belongings gives me some sense of control over the fact that something else, an invisible force changing people's lives everywhere, has decided when I should leave. By the afternoon, most of my room is either tucked away, folded up, or in the garden shed. So it makes sense that that's when I get an email from Etihad. My flight's been cancelled. An hour later, through to a customer service rep, I get told the UAE borders actually closed an hour ago, rather than in two days' time like I'd read online. I've still got adrenaline pumping through me as I give everyone the news, again, that I'm staying, actually. It takes me a week to unpack my bags. 
and something stay bubble-wrapped and in the suitcase. I don't bother to take them back out. Part of me suspects it won't be long before I start packing again. Our house reduces from six to four. Two of our housemates, Kyle and Emily, leave to go stay with Kyle's mum outside London. She's over 60 and a bit more vulnerable, given the circumstances. It's an uncertain time, and we're all looking for stability where we can. In the next couple of weeks, cases start to rise rapidly in the UK, with over 2,000 daily cases getting announced by the end of March. But there's a sort of consensus among my family and friends back home that maybe it's safer to shelter in place now. All the borders for a transiting Australian from Europe have basically closed. I start checking the Australian High Commission in the UK's Facebook page daily for updates. The advice is consistent and a little scary. Consider your safety in the UK. Consider what support networks you have. When I hear about the Qantas repatriation flights just announced, I rush to book another ticket home. It's 9.30 on a Saturday night. We're finally serving up dinner, the last house dinner before our housemate Tori goes home. I've been cooking for four and a half hours, and I've roped my remaining housemates into helping with my very ambitious plan. Well, actually, they offered to help because they're good people. The smacked cucumber, fried cabbage with chili. Basically, every surface in the kitchen is covered in oil from where we pulled, stretched, and smacked the biang biang noodles on the counter. We're quickly trying to scoop them out from the pot. There are some stray bits bubbling away in the boiling water from the noodles that got stretched a bit too thinly. It's definitely amateur hour. I'll be the first to admit it. But as we finally sit down to eat, Mano and Angus feed my ego a little. Apparently, it tastes pretty close to their favourite noodles, from a local place near us called Xi'an Impression. I never got to try them, and I guess I won't get to now. But it's still pretty gratifying to hear. Apparently, they'd been craving them for a while. It's another lockdown recipe that's been doing the rounds, actually. Like sourdough or banana bread. It comes from the Instagram account of an Odalengi test kitchen chef and fellow North Londoner. Turns out, she was trying to work out how to make those same Xi'an impression noodles, because she'd been craving them in lockdown too. Anyway, we share some beers. And after that, we're kind of too exhausted to do much else. But navigating that kitchen chaos together kind of feels like enough in itself. On Tuesday night, there's another low-key farewell dinner for me. I'm flying out the next day. The UK had 3,996 new cases that day. Just as we're about to dig into some takeaway curries, a couple of our mates show up at the door. They linger in the doorway and just behind that, in the concrete yard. I fish around in a paper bag that I get given. I pull out a handful of paper cards. Turning them over, front to back, I see they've got recipes handwritten on them. One's for homemade hot and tangy sauce, written out on shiny gold cardboard. On the back of a postcard, Angus has written out his specialty, the carbonara he taught us to make last week. Holding them is like holding an explosion of colour, of memories, of meals I've heard about and wanted to try, cooked for birthdays, cooked for dinner parties. 
Max's veggie ramen is a throwback to Chef Mira Soda, whose cookbooks he and Rosa first showed me in their South London kitchen. Recently, I'd been asking a few friends about their favourite recipes, because I wanted to collect them myself, into a kind of homemade recipe book. But holding these cards in my hands is an actual tangible reminder of the last year and a half, of the people I've met, and of the moments shared. It's way better than a recipe link sent over WhatsApp. It's a way to come back, whenever I want, despite the thousands of kilometres between us, as long as I've got a kitchen to use and some ingredients to spare. Limited food service on board. I don't really know what that means until I'm on the 16 and a half hour flight from Heathrow to Perth. Minimalistic is what it means, I guess. The plane lights slowly flicker back on. Flight attendants come down the aisles with trolleys. It's the strangest meal I've shared. Suspended in the air, and spaced out with a seat between each of us. Masks getting adjusted on faces, getting ready to eat. No one really talks as you'd expect. We all face the same direction as we sit and eat. I wonder where the provided plain food comes from. We get little packets of snacks, Tim Tams included, at our final stop in Melbourne. And I wonder who put those together. I spend the next 14 days in Melbourne's hotel quarantine. The knock at the door always comes at roughly the same time of day for each meal. For dinner, it's between 6 and 7 p.m. It's usually followed by a muffled voice from outside the door, announcing food service. I assume all the travellers more or less eat the same meals provided, probably at the same time. But for one thing, we don't share the same space. Obviously we can't. We're each in our anonymous hotel rooms. And those interactions that happen in the kitchen and around the dinner table are missing. And for another thing, I know the folks across the hall from me are making good use of Uber Eats. And fair enough. One thing I miss is the control of choosing and making your own meal. Veg. Any of. Squash, aubergine, fennel, broccoli. Whatever else you fancy. I'm cutting broccoli right now. And uh, I'm kind of guessing all of the of the quantities of the veggies. Assembling ingredients. Sesame oil, soy sauce, mirin. Working steadily through the steps to an end result. There's step three. Number three. Roast your chosen vegetables. In a time as weird and murky and unpredictable as this, you get some semblance of choice. You get to put an intention behind what you make. And sometimes you don't get the result that you want. Like the stray bits of noodle left in the pot. But you can try, and you can serve up that effort, and intention, and care, to someone else. Hot frothy broth, aka all the men's ramens. On to the method. Number one, fry the onions until super soft. Add lots of garlic, ginger, and chilies, and fry for two more minutes. Number two, Add two tablespoons each of miso, tahini, and soy sauce, and one liter of veg stock. Turn down the heat and leave to bubble away. So the base of the broth is bubbling away, sort of very gently simmering away on the stove. Number three. 
Roast your chosen vegetables with a splash of soy sauce, sesame oil, and mirin or rice wine. Here we go. It's in there. Until tender. I reckon what I'm going to do is just turn the oven off now. And let them chill out in there for a little bit. I'm cutting the tofu that's going to get fried in step. Which step is it? Number four, slice the tofu into big slabs and fry in a non-stick pan until golden, turning occasionally. Number five, cook the noodles, however the packet says, and cool them under the tap. Well, according to the instructions for these ramen noodles, you can just add them in at the last minute. Number six, do the same with the eggs, if you're using eggs, then peel them which is the fun bit. Here we go. Let's find out just how soft-boiled they are. There are some people that can do this. Oh, amazing. The whole thing just came off. Number seven. Put a portion of the noodles into a big bowl for each person. Lay the veg over them and ladle over the hot broth. Sprinkle the tofu with sesame seeds and add it to the bowls. Garnish generously and serve with a frothy cold lager. Back in Sydney, one of the first things I make is the hand-pulled noodles for a family dinner. And after that, I pick up the recipe cards again and I start planning the next meal. That story was produced by Lydia Yosefova. The supervising producer was Ryan Pemberton. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung land and 8CCC on Aranda and Waramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Emma Pham are our social media producers, and our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>